We have a secret to tell you, but it requires absolute discretion. It all started with an invitation, a small white key card with an address. Heather and I looked at each other. It's as if we were compelled to see where the key would take us. As we approached the address on the card, there was a large warehouse door, and the building had no markings on it. We swiped our key and entered a disorienting room with a slide that seemed to go nowhere. We asked ourselves, do we continue down the rabbit hole, or do we turn back now? Without trepidation, we went down the slide, landing in a room with three doors. Each door would lead to a different destiny. We chose the first door and entered a room with a telephone. We picked it up. You have reached the concierge desk. You're now present in the lounge of the San Francisco House of the Latitude. There is a challenge ahead that will rely upon your skills, gut intuition, and savoir-faire. You have been selected out of many and were chosen for a reason. One of our members has great faith in you. In bright axiom, my friend. Hi, I'm Heather Grayson writer, producer, and director who craves passion in filmmaking, and documentarians are just that. I write fiction, but I love to watch the truth. My name is B.C. Wayman. I'm an actor, a writer, an entertainer, all sorts of creative endeavors. But what I love most? Being a storyteller. It's why I love documentaries. They're extraordinary stories from everyday, extraordinary people. This is Behind the Doc, and today, we are behind the scenes with In Bright Axiom. I knew that now there existed this tribe whom I now had access to. We sort of thought of it as ours and we started to think of it as real. And it was awesome and it was utopian and it was sort of ideal in, in many ways. Welcome, everyone, to Behind the Doc, the podcast where we take a deep dive into documentary films and the people that make them. Heather and I watch God, we watch a lot of documentary films to try and bring you some great guests on our show. And sometimes, sometimes you watch a film and you're like, man, that's hard to watch. Sometimes you watch a film and you're like, God, it really touched my heartstrings. Sometimes you watch a film and you are like, what the heck did I just watch? And I feel like that's where I'm sitting right now, so I'm very excited to have our guest on today, the director of Inbright Axiom, Spencer McCall. Spencer, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thanks for, thanks for taking me on. We are very excited to have you because uh, we have questions. We have a lot of questions Lots that I would imagine Spencer. they do. So let's start this way. How do you describe it to people? And then we'll dig into it a little bit. With this kind of film, I, I often say, you know, I could explain to you what it's about but it would take 92 minutes to do so. And that's kind of like the idea. What this was was a, a social experiment that was put on by a group of artists in the Bay Area to really move people outside their comfort zone and to show them that there is a world lurking literally beneath the streets of the cities that they live in. And there is a home for them. There's a tribe and there is a whole civilization and society and ancient history that you know nothing about. And 
this is an exploration of what happens when you give people keys to a society or a temple and basically give people a religion and then take it away from them. It is with great satisfaction that I write to you today. After a comprehensive screening process, you've been accepted for membership in The Latitude. The Latitude is a private membership society with absolute discretion as its guiding principle. To be clear, an individual who reports content publicly is not invited to return. Included in this letter are directions and an auditory recording hereby known as a mantis track in Axiom. Okay, so for me, it really felt like after rewinding and rewatching, I was like, this is D&D, this is Pensick, this is the ultimate in what people begin and find fellowship and love and connection. And it was sad to see it kind of end at the end. For me, I just definitely love this side of art. I appreciated it a lot. What was it for you that started this whole creative story and stories and getting together with Jeff Hall? Yeah. I mean, it's actually kind of a a long story and a long history. I can take you back a little bit. This is actually kind of one third of a sort of indie shared cinematic universe of films. The first one being The Institute, which we did a, a number of years ago. The story of how I met Jeff Hall and how I got involved with this was kind of interesting. I was, um, <laughs> sometimes people don't believe this, but my first job out of college, I was uh, working for a dog cloning company. I was kind of the videographer there. And we were trying to launch a dog cloning enterprise where each dog costs about $150,000 right as the recession hit. So that company went out of business. And, uh, you know, at the time, I don't know if people use it as much these days, but I did what I had to do to try to find, you know, a gig and went on Craigslist and found this very cryptic post asking for a video editor to put together these strange kind of videos. And it was all very cryptic and not a lot of information was given. But these videos became part of these installation pieces for something called the Jejun Institute. And after about three years of making these videos and accumulating a lot of footage, I decided to kind of just go off on my own and and make a film. And Jeff said, you know, knock yourself out. (laughs) Didn't really see him again for about six months. Came back with the film and he said, great. As this was happening, essentially, um, Jeff decided to create this new collective and create the Latitude Society and asked if I would help make more of these video pieces along with it. And I said, sure, but I'd like to really document this whole process from the beginning. And so with the Latitude, it was, you know, I'm going to start making this. And I expected the whole thing to go on for, you know, a decade And after about two years, it kind of imploded on itself. And there are quite a number of interesting (laughs) reasons why that happens. And the beauty of the format of documentary is you don't know where it's going to go. I mean, obviously, sometimes there are docs that are done retroactively. But I think the benefit of working on a doc on a subject that's going through their own journey is that when that pivot happens, it can create some like really fascinating moments and things that are are stranger than fiction. And 
this doc is definitely um, an attempt to be <laughs> stranger than fiction or stranger than nonfiction. It definitely falls in those categories. And I want to get to definitely a lot of this in a little bit here about how it ends. But I want to go back to the beginning. You mentioned, so you found this this post on Craigslist, right? That required a lot of trust for you to go on. And I feel like all of these members who took part in the Latitude Society, there's an inherent form of trust that, I got to be honest, Spencer, I don't know if I have. I don't know if someone handed me a card and said, trust me, go see this, if I would have that kind of vibe to explore. So there's definitely a, a type of person who's willing to take a chance, see something cryptic, follow it down the literal, in this case, rabbit hole, so to speak. How did you figure out, I guess, the initial people to get involved in the Latitude Society? How did it, because I know it grew as people join, but how did they start to determine who are our first humans that we're going to get involved in this social experiment? Yeah. So the interesting thing about the latitude and the way that it, it existed was it was kind of always a pay it forward model. So the creators and, and co-contributors of what I would consider, I suppose myself to be, we started off with a handful of these cards and the idea was find people of like mind and heart who would be willing to take these chances and who you think their life could be improved in some way by going through a, a journey like this. And you'd sit them down, generally just one-on-one, -on -one, and the first thing you would say is, can you keep a secret? I'd say that for every five cards that I would hand out, one would would follow through on it. For the people who did follow through with this, they were people who were curious and intrepid and looking for something. We are giving you a community, a congregation, a tradition, a ritual. And that filled, I know for myself and for many other people who got involved, that filled something that had been missing for a while. I feel like I had in some ways dreamed of things like this. Everything is designed to make you feel like you don't understand how the world works anymore. I feel like I'd been woken up, and the first thing I thought was, how do I help make sure this stays? How do I help make sure that something like this gets to as many people as possible? So in that same regard, on a technical aspect, I have to tell you, Spencer, it was a it's a beautiful-looking film. Like, your rooms, even your interview subjects are extremely well-lit. You have some wonderful animations that really add to it, and it maybe just the small sigils that come on during the screen, you know, that kind of vibe, but then just some cartoonish, almost, aspects of animation that really add to it, though. Like, it makes it, it, it makes it more whole. Was that like this conscious effort that I'm going to go a little bit beyond the documentary, the talking heads, and then showing some stock photos and add these type of what they're describe, what they're talking about, or even filming of the professor scenes, which once again, beautiful looking scenes, the way you filmed them. I mean, that's feature film stuff there, the, his journey with Cecile and whatnot. Was that this conscious effort that the parts that aren't the talking heads that are talking and, you know, filling it in, we want to really give them a lot more exposition, give them some visuals to help tell the tale. Was that a conscious effort first or did it come after looking at all the footage of your subjects and then saying, I need to fill this in more? Well, so, <laughs> thanks. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a, a big part of like the professor's journey is when people participated in in the actual latitude and and to explain the latitude, I mean, it, it is a piece of art that it was always intended to be ambient and beautiful and just art. And it, it had so many different artists come together to contribute to this, uh, whether it's the murals in the arcade 
or you know the designs of of um, the the creatures uh, and the puppets that are in it, and the the animations. Like these were this was a collaborative group effort under you know the artistic direction, at least as far as the latitude goes, of, of Jeff Holes. As you embark on your journey, I'm heading off on my own. When it came to the like the professor's journey, which was stuff that I that I helped shoot, as we were going along, people would go through these different phases of the latitude, and at the end they would get a passphrase. It would be, you know, I think the first one was the signal, or um, the second one was like high seas, and you'd go home and you'd return to your glowing box or your <laughs> your computer, and you'd input this signal, and you'd get kind of like in a video game, you'd get these cutscenes, these cinematics where in between the gameplay you get to know a little bit more about like what the story is and and so the thing with the professor's journey is before the latitude closed we had only shot maybe like two of those sequences we shot him you know giving the explanation of what the latitude is and then getting on his boat the boat freedom and then heading out to the sea and then that was an unlock scene for one then you would get the unlock scene of him on the boat but when the latitude closed, there had still intended to be like another, you know, nine or so chapters of this, uh, nine more sequences of the professor's journey. And so as I was interviewing people and I started realizing what the relationship was between the professor and Jeff or Jordy and Jeff and and the professor and Quas. The professor was the voice of empathy and connection and welcome, and Quaz was the voice and face of caution and impersonal, cynical self-criticism. The professor became more and more strongly identified with the society member and, and her or his experience, whereas Quaz very much was the creator figure, the kind of cold godhead, and in that sense reflected Jeff. Hey, hey there. there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon. I did decide that we needed to finish off the professor's journey in some way. And to do that, I continued with his journey through the redwoods and through the, the desert. And we wanted to do snow-capped mountains, but uh, the timing never really worked <laughs> out. What we did at the end, there were a lot of people who I wanted to speak with, I wanted to interview, who were either kind of upset at how it ended or um, upset that the documentary even existed because a big part of what this was was absolute discretion. It was the idea that this is a secret. Can you keep a secret? And if you're making a documentary about it, you're going to be exposing it. So I don't want to talk to you on camera. You know, at the end of the day, 
you got to just as a documentary filmmaker, you just got to respect that. You can try to facilitate relationships, but you got to respect that. But that said, there were a number of people who said, I don't want to talk on camera, but I will tell you what my thoughts are. And so how do I get those thoughts into the film without having these people in the film? And so what I decided to do was basically give a lot of those grievances to the professor at the end of the film. And he's able to confront Quas, or in this case, Jeff. And Jeff can have that conversation and the society can have that conversation with Jeff through the, the guise of fiction. Quas! Ah, the straw man. Where is everyone? Back to prime. You are prime. You are so rigid and so fixed in your insistence that it has to go your way. This was a beautiful thing. And you killed it. The zealots killed what they could not comprehend. The creation was suffocated. What does that mean? To secure the entity field, the tangibles must find alignment. Otherwise, the portals close. You failed. You are too late. I was here all along. You were here? The self-professed puppet? You do not see your own reflection. The betrayal is yours. You did this. You killed this thing. There was so much beauty. There was so much connection. It was really interesting to, to hear some of the people talking about how it made them feel when it ended going back to dark places and not feeling great with what was going on. Next thing I know, I'm reading stuff online that says that Jeff just shut the doors. I kind of was confounded because it was so good when I left. I, I was like, what happened? Like, why, how could it have blown up to a thing that he just wanted to instantly close down? What are your thoughts on it ending so abruptly? What was it that, was it something that you were, like, really surprised about? Maybe something, some other angles? Maybe they could have paid? You know, were there any discussions that we didn't see? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it was definitely a shock to me. Part of me knowing from the beginning that I was going to be making this doc, and, and I think a lot of people in the society knew that it was happening, that I was working on this thing as it happened, I very willfully took a step back and I wanted to have more of an outsider view in on this situation than an insider sharing what was already a part of it. I was just kind of like surprised and and then sat back and it's like, well, <laughs> okay. So, you know, the plane, everybody loaded onto the plane and uh, they're all really excited. They're all going to get to go to Hawaii and the plane takes off and you know, within 10 minutes, sorry, folks, we're, uh, we're turning around, we're, we're going to land again. And that's kind of like where I was at at this moment. Whereas initially the doc was like, what happens when we get to Hawaii or, you know, whatever magical place that this was going to end up going to. And I think for a lot of people who finally did seem to find the community and the religion that they had been seeking or that had been missing in their lives to suddenly have like one person sort of have the ability to take that away from them. You know, it's it's devastating to for a lot of people who needed this to suddenly have it be taken away. People were invested emotionally in creation in the creation space. People who created it. Like it was their lives too. 
And when it shut down, it was taken away from them as well. I'm almost ashamed to say it took me back to a place where I was when I was, you know, about to be hospitalized again. Like the latitude closing felt like it was something, like someone uh, close to me was, was gone. This film takes place, I guess I should say, the Latitude Society is mostly in San Francisco. Is that correct? Yes and no. <laughs> well, because here's where I'm curious, because I think the Institute also is in San Francisco, or at least based out of. And I just wonder, as I was watching this, when I kind of got through the end and kind of processed it all and did a little research, does it work outside of that area? Like we had this conversation with the Latitude Society, and I definitely want to talk in a second about all the building of it. Would that work in Cleveland? Would it work in Missouri? Would it work in uh, even in New York? I feel like that area is ripe for that, but maybe, you know, um, being a little more from the outside. I just wonder how much you feel the location and the people in those locations played into it, especially starting. Great. That's like one of the best questions ever. Um, So the short answer is yes. I think it can and would and should work wherever. I mean, look at Meow Wolf. It's in freaking New Mexico. Not that Santa Fe is the middle of nowhere or anything, but People, it's sort of like if you feel the dreams, if you build it, they will come. And and I think that something like this would be very powerful in places, probably more so in middle America than the coasts, where I'm not trying to say that there's, you know, all social, everything socially interesting is happening on, on the coast, because that's definitely not the case. But there's so much going on that I think it's easy in places like San Francisco or L.A. or New York for people to have other things go- to do or people vying too much for people's attention. So I think I think something like this would work even better in a place like, you know, Missouri or or Ohio. Some freaky portal to another dimension. And at that point, I was like, OK, I'm going to you know, however much of this is real and however much of this is fake, I am, like, going to pretend it's all real because this is, this is so well done. I could, like, really um, suspend any disbelief at this point. I mean, it is, it is out of the box. It is, it is art out of the box. It's experimental. It's, it's something that I definitely know that while I was watching it, you know, my 76-year-old mother was coming down. She was like, what is this about? Like, she had, <laughs> she did not understand. But I loved, I loved the fact that this is such an art piece. I loved all the art, the, all the murals you had talked about that before, all the sculptures, just the art in general. What was it that in, in the buildings? I mean, he had so many different buildings, you know, in downtown San Francisco, San Francisco. I can't even fathom just the building of this, you know? It's just is, is crazy. What was the manpower? What was the work behind it? Huge team of really, really talented artists and engineers that Jeff had hired to come on and and build these things. I mean, it took it took years uh, to build the the underground labyrinth. And I think the philosophy uh, for some of the design was, you know, when it came to to certain things, um, where it's <laughs> it's a little bit more ask forgiveness instead of permission. So, like a good example of that is on the what the fourteenth floor of a 
old mechanics library in downtown San Francisco. We're going to bring in basically a dump truck's load of sand and not tell building management. I was speaking with the uh, the like building manager when we were doing some interviews and just said, hey, did, did you ever like go up there and, and look inside? And she said, well, one day the cleaning crew went in to <laughs> to try to, you know, vacuum and uh, they find this office room filled with just like so much sand. I mean, you can see it. And the idea was that inside this office building, there is this, this beach, there is this place where you can do Jungian sand play. And and so I don't personally know how how all that sand was removed when things abruptly closed. But I mean, it was just a team of of I think the core team was probably actually only like maybe six to eight people. But the number of contractors who helped contribute went into the, the dozens. And um, yeah, it's just really a testament to great artists in the Bay Area coming together and, and building something really really amazing. So as we start to wrap up, I have a question. You mentioned in the beginning that there was, this was like a, a, a trilogy of sorts, right? Another trilogy that's coming, very vogue these days. I mean, I'm assuming <laughs> the Institute was first, and I know according to Dark Corners of the Internet that there was a logo for the Latitude Society in the end of the Institute. There are rumors of mysterious logos in the end of the Latitude Society, and I'm sure you're ripe to tell us exactly what's happening. But... Is something else like going on right now that we're going to see down the road? I know it's not the place to spoil here, but it seems like, I guess, is this the end? Let me just give you that generic vague question. Is this the end or do we have more to see soon? I don't think anything's ever over. That's a great answer, though. That was. It's very politician of you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So should we be on the lookout at some point for the closure of this? Is that uh, what I'm looking for there? Yes, I'd say so. I don't think it's going to be the closure that you might expect, but I think it could be a closure that, um, you know, the end of any um, exciting saga or trilogy has to end with a bunch of laser beams and explosions. And um, I will tell you that you will get that. And Spencer, honestly, I could probably talk to you for another four hours about this. I, BC and I, <laughs> and both, and Sarah. I mean, we just, we just were absolutely like, okay, we have to come in early and talk about this in detail. Thank you. Once again, in Bright Axiom, it is a uh, it's a mind twister there, right? You're not quite sure what's happening. I definitely <laughs> would encourage you to check it out. Uh, the, if you haven't seen the Institute as well, I maybe even watch that first because it kind of you can see the evolution of where you've gone. But it's pretty cool stuff what you're doing out there, Spencer. I'm not sure if I'm taking the dive there, but there's a lot of people that do, right? And so that is yep. exactly what they're there for. I'm a little too OCD and paranoid, but that's all right. Uh, it's a really cool thing. It was a really unique film that stands out in a you talked about other documentaries sometimes they're very negative and this was just it was a positive journey and I know there's a good drama involved into it but it felt positive in its completion right it's a good story it's a good tale it leaves you with good you know lasting vibe to it and some confusion but it was fantastic and we really appreciate it so thank you for joining us on behind the dock and uh, good luck out there sir thank you so much and once it was clear that like they're not going to keep making stuff for us. It meant that if we want our community of experienced designers to continue, we have to start making things for each other. The same kind of selfless love that they poured into a project like this is the same kind of selfless love that I try to pour into everything that I do. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Behind the Dock. If you liked us, because we all know you did, leave us a review in your Apple Podcast app. Behind the Dock is produced by Evergreen Podcast in association with Gravitas Ventures. Special thanks to executive producers Nolan Gallagher and Michael D'Aloya. Produced by Sarah Wilgroup and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. And you'll find us everywhere and anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.